You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Okay, we're going to turn to this psalm. We're going to look at what God's Word says to us from it. It's a song that is an incredibly sad song. And as such, some people may think it's more appropriate for a dreek November evening or cold February than this glorious summer sunshine that we have. But you and I know that there can be sunshine and there can be lots of good things that we have and yet also tremendous sorrow. Some of you here are in a stage of life, a period where you're very happy. Um, I don't wish to be morose, but that can change. And the other way around, of course, as well, you can be going, you can be really struggling, and that can change. And I think it's helpful for us to understand something of the human heart, especially as found through Christ. Now, what is interesting about this song is Jesus uses this song more than any other part. In the New Testament, this is quoted more, and it's mostly quoted by Christ or about Christ. And it's a song that's very appropriate for when you are in trouble, when things go wrong, and when the church is in trouble. If you're struggling with things just now, I think this will be very helpful to you. And if you're not struggling just now and things are going well, keep it in mind, store it up, and come back to it. Basically, the summary of the situation that David is in is that uh, his life has been threatened. He He faces prolonged hatred, and the church is being attacked. So let's read from verse 1. What I'll do is we'll just go through it uh, as I read, um, because there's quite a lot in it, and I just refer you as we go along. So we'll start at verse 1. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out, calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail, looking for my God. I have come into the deep waters. I sink in the miry depths. I don't know if you've ever gone swimming. And uh, I remember one time, somewhat bizarrely, swimming in the Mississippi River. Sorry, Duncan. I remember swimming in the Mississippi River and thinking, this is great. This is no problem. Because a massive river and there was this wonderful... um, rope swing that you would go out and you just plonk in the water and it was all marvelous and wonderful and great and you know I'd swim for a wee bit I wasn't a great swimmer then I'd stop and I'd put my feet down and there'd be rock or just be you know good solid sand until one time I went out and I thought I'm a bit tired I'll I'll stop I'll put my feet down and I put my feet down and instead of being solid it was mud and it began to suck me and I just thought this is the end you know, always cheerful. And it's, it was just incredible because when there's nothing solid underneath you and the waters are coming over you, 
there's nothing that you can do. There isn't a thing that you can do. Thankfully, somebody was with me and, and saw what was happening and jumped in uh, to rescue. But this experience here of the psalmist is one in which, well, maybe I'll tell you what, maybe let me back off a little bit. The psalmist David is a, is a, is a solid guy. He's faced many, many dangers. He's killed Goliath. He's taken on lions with his bare hands. So he's not some kind of wuss. And yet here he is describing a situation where he's come into the deep waters and he feels in total and absolute despair. His prayers have been unanswered for so long that his throat is parched and his eyes are weary. My eyes fail looking for my God. There is an immediate application here that I, I want to apply to us. If you find yourself in a situation where you are in despair, where you do not experience joy, where you can't just dismiss the troubles that are coming to you, where you don't stand up under them, where you are absolutely overwhelmed, where you just cannot cope, it doesn't mean you're not a Christian, and it doesn't mean that you're a backslidden Christian. It means that you're going through the same experience that David went through, and ultimately, as we'll see, that Christ went through. In other words, being a Christian no more guarantees you emotional health than it guarantees you physical health. And I know that that's hard for some people to take, and they don't like hearing that, and they don't want it to be like that. But actually, for many of us, it's something that's just an enormous relief. I've told uh, some of you before that in doing research on Robert Murray McShane, I discovered he had two, two bouts of breakdown that were caused by depression. And I did uh, once... Spoke, I spoke about that in a situation where a minister came up to me afterwards. He said, you know, I am just, that's one of the best sermons I've ever heard in my life. I said, why? He said, because McShane got depressed. And I said, well, why, is that, why is that good news? He says, because I've suffered from depression and I've always thought it was ungodly. But McShane, in the free church, McShane's first name is the godly. The godly Robert Murray McShane. He had depression? Yeah, he did. He did have depression. And it can happen. And David here is just absolutely overwhelmed. There's no foothold. Verse 4, those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause, those who seek to destroy me. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. It's reckoned that what was happening here is David was being accused of financial malpractice, forced to restore what he did not steal. He's being accused of something that he didn't do, and he has many, many enemies. And again, that's almost counterintuitive to Christianity today, where people say, if you're a really good Christian, people are going to like you. You're going to be really popular. And we, we hear about these Christians, and their witness is so wonderful, and everywhere they go, they spread the fragrance of Christ, and people just think, wow, I wish I could be like them. I wish I could be a Christian. And then there you are, seeking to live as a Christian, seeking to follow Jesus Christ, and instead of people loving you, they hate you. And you think, what kind of Christian must I be? And they say the same thing, actually. 
What kind of Christian is he? What kind of Christian is she? Many are my enemies without cause. Christianity is not a way to popularity. And as I say, we we, we find that really hard to grasp. None of us wants to be unpopular. None of us wants to be discouraged or depressed. And yet, that is what will happen. Verse 5, you know my folly, O God, my guilt is not hidden from you. His personal foolishness and sin. Now, I think what David is saying here is that he was foolish, perhaps, in paying back what he didn't have to pay back, but he'd not, he was not guilty. He acted as if he was guilty, and he wasn't. It's interesting because this psalm is, is used of Jesus a lot, and um, St. Augustine spent pages trying to explain how verse 5 could apply to Christ. And Calvin basically says, Augustine was daft trying to do that. We just don't, because it doesn't apply in that way. But for all of us, I think, one of the worst things that happens, you can be discouraged and depressed, you can have lots of enemies, and then you look in the mirror and you realize, I've been foolish. Or you see something of your own sin. But it gets worse. May those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me, O Lord, the Lord Almighty. May those who seek you not be put to shame because of me, O God of Israel. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. And what David is saying here is that because he's being attacked, the church is being attacked. And so God's people and God himself is is being attacked. And that's a horrible thing, isn't it? It's horrible when somebody accuses you and they say things like, do you know, I like Jesus, but if it wasn't for people like you, I'd probably believe in Jesus. Or I like Jesus, but I hate the church. Or I like that kind of Christian, but you, your kind of Christian? No, thanks. That puts anyone off. And people accuse and abuse Mud sticks, and it affects the whole church. Verse 8, I am a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my own mother's sons. That's when it gets very painful. Discouragement, depression, hatred, foolishness, the church being attacked, and then your family Finance and families don't often go together, and it's possible that in this situation, David's extended family were looking and saying, where where, where did that money go? And how did this occur? Maybe they thought they should have had some of it. Family's great. You know, it's nice having a partner. It's nice having a husband, nice having a wife. It's nice having parents, nice having children. But families can also be causes of immense tension and immense sorrow. And families can turn on one another. I've come across, and I'm sure you're aware of, or maybe you've experienced yourself, situations where brothers haven't spoken for decades. Situations where parents have said about their children, they are no longer my children. 
situations of extraordinary hatred in the midst of what should be extraordinary love. And David is experiencing estrangement from his family. And nothing hurts as much as that. And then verses 9 to 12. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the the song of the drunkards. He's mocked because of his faith. Now make no mistake here, God is the target. People hate God. God is the real target, but they go for his people. David was motivated by devotion. Zeal for your house consumes me. Quoted again, of course, of Christ. The drunkard, he's, they make up songs about him. They laugh about him. It's interesting when I listen to uh, comedy shows, particularly, I'm a, you know, I've got class, so I like Radio 4. So I listen to comedy shows on, on Radio 4. And it's funny how comedians just mock and mock and mock God and his people. And the drunkards, it's like walking down the Perth Road and someone who's staggering out of a pub and they see you and they start singing songs about you. But it's not just that. It's the people who sit in the gate. And in that culture, that means the rulers. It means the establishment. It means the elites. And I know that we tell children, well, I hope we don't. I hope we've all learned not to now. Sticks and stones may bake my bones, but names will never hurt me. But all of us know that names do hurt us. I know enough of you here. In fact, I know all of you enough, well enough, to say that if your reputation is being attacked, that is when you become most defensive. You become very aggressive. I'm the same. Someone comes from me, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I, want, I want to go for them because they're attacking who I am. They're attacking my reputation. And it's very, very hard for us to deal with that without being incredibly personal. That's how wars start. That's how churches split. That's how families end up having these kind of fights because you do the he said, she said kind of thing. And it just becomes, you calling me a liar? No, I didn't say that. What, are you calling me a liar? And so on. It's really incredible how human beings, how we can degenerate into fighting so quickly. And sometimes those closest to us. Zeal for your house consumes me. The insults of those who insult you fall on me. Now, how do we make sure... I was thinking about this, and uh, Mr. Calvin was very helpful to me again in reading this. I was thinking about how we, how do we know that people are not attacking us because we are being obnoxious or because we are wrong? How do we know that they're attacking us because of God? And I thought what Calvin said was wonderful. He says this, until we have learned to set very little value upon our own reputation will never be inflamed with true zeal in contending for the preservation and advancement of the interests of divine glory. 
Now, this is a really hard lesson to learn, and it takes a long time to get there, and I'm not saying that as someone who has got there. I feel that I'm very much at the beginning of the journey. But until you are able to put your own reputation at least to the side or in the background, you will never have a real zeal and devotion for God. Does it matter if people trash you? Does it matter if people attack you? Well, in one sense it does. But it shouldn't be in the absolute sense. What should bother us more than anything else is that Christ is dishonored, is that God is not glorified, is that his people are being attacked. Far too many of us are over-anxious about preserving our own good name. What if you are called names? What if you are perceived in a squabble in within the church to be the person who's in the wrong? Why do you have to keep going? Why do you, do you have to, why, why so determined to clear yourself? Because you're so focused on yourself. And because we don't grasp that the Lord will sort all things out. Not just on the day of judgment, but also as we go along. Sometimes, as Christians, we have to back off from some situations, not because we're cowardly, not because we don't care, but because, precisely because we do care. And David is praying here because he's in deep trouble and because he is being mocked and because he's enduring scorn, and he has to, as Christ did. Let's go on, verse 13 to 15. But I pray to you, O Lord, in the time of your favor... In your great love, O God, answer me with your salvation. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me from the deep waters. Do not let the flood waters engulf me or the depths swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Now you're sharp and you're still awake. So as you see this, you'll see that this refers back to the very start of the chapter where in the start he describes the situation and here he explains what God is doing for him. And notice the great words that come in there. There's acceptance. There's love. There's sure salvation. In verse 13, the old translation was in an acceptable time, in the time of God's favor. And what's being told here is this. I am drowning. I am sinking. I am overwhelmed. I cannot cope but God rescues from the overwhelming floods. What it doesn't say is that God will rescue immediately or you get what you want immediately. But it's a great biblical lesson. Wait on the Lord, be patient. Wait on the Lord, be patient. Some of you will have experienced, as I have, times in your life when you just don't understand You saw this, you believed this, you trusted God for this, you did what you thought God wanted you to do, and then it all turned out completely different from what you expected. 
And yes, there are people who will analyze and who'll tell you this and that was wrong and this was right and that was... But within yourself, you don't know. You can't work it out. You can't understand. You are completely puzzled. You are completely overwhelmed. How is it that I did this and I sought the Lord and then I had a breakdown? How is it that I was serving God and so many things were happening and then I almost died? How is it that our church prayed and then we had a massive fight. How did that happen? And all our thoughts and all our ways, and we're all trying to get it, and we can't see it. We're, we, we, we can't see the bigger picture. We know there's a bigger picture, but we don't get it. And the devil comes as the accuser and says, it's your fault, or it's their fault, or tries to get you angry, or whatever. But you, you're just emotionally wrung out. You're spiritually wrung out. And you have to hold on to this. It is absolutely essential. I pray to you because in your great love, you answer me with your salvation. Because that's what happens. Verse 16, answer me, O Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I'm in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Redeem me because of my foes. What does he want? It's as though God's face is hidden and he's crying, Father, please look at me. Look at me. Turn your face towards me. And God answers. God rescues. God redeems. God comes near. Answer me out of the goodness of your love. Notice that prayer. Notice how great that prayer is. It's not answer me because I am a good person or answer me because I have done this or answer me uh, because I feel this. But it's answer me out of the goodness of your love. Because you know, the devil's winning when God's people start thinking that maybe God isn't so good. Or that God doesn't love. Because all the evidence seems to be that because of what is happening to us, God is toying with us, playing with us, allowing us to be manipulated, allowing us to be attacked. And nothing's happening. It, it looks as though, in, in Psalm 73, the psalmist says, I, I looked at the wicked and they were prospering. They were doing really well. They were healthy. They had no troubles in their families. They had no troubles with their health. But me, I was overwhelmed. And he didn't know. How, how do you deal with that? Creflo Dollar is coming to Scotland next week. And he's going to stand up and give a message. I'm not a prophet, but I'll prophesy this. He's going to stand up and give a message and say, you are not living in victory because you could be living in victory. You are in sickness because you're not living in the atonement of Jesus Christ. You are not wealthy because Jesus wants you to be wealthy and you're just not accepting it. And it's the complete reverse of what the scripture says, which says to some of the people in South Sudan who Neil and Jenny will be going to, who are believers, and who see their children die. God doesn't come to them and say, it's because you're wicked or it's because you're not living in victory. There's, 
the, this world, we need to grasp this. This world is twisted. There's so much evil and sickness and, and, and everything else. It is a broken and fallen world, and we are broken and fallen people. And our cry to God has to be, Lord, you are good and the giver of all things that are good. And you answer out of the goodness of your love. And I know that that doesn't mean that, I, that I'm always going to experience health and always going to be wealthy and everything's going to be fine. But it means that I trust you even though you slay me. Verses 19 onwards. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none for comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents, for they persecute those you wound and talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. They scorned me. They broke my heart. They gave me vinegar and gall for food and drink. So let their table become a snare. Let them not see. Let them see your wrath. Charge them with crime. May they be blotted out of the book of life. May those who set themselves eternally against God see that he is set eternally against them. It's not very Christian, is it? It doesn't seem that way. And yet, it's very understandable and there's a great truth within it. Because there is justice in this world. And those who mock and attack God and his people are piling upon themselves judgment upon judgment. So, I guess if I was to do an altar call just now and ask how many of you want to become a Christian because this is what you're going to face, there wouldn't be many people who would pick it. Certainly, Mr. Dollar is going to have a much more attractive message to many people. But this is reality. This is the world we live in. This is the people we are. We're not done. I want to just go on to do the end bit just very briefly after we've sung uh, again from this psalm. We're going to sing Psalm 69 from verse 13. We'll do the same tune, uh, Kildonan, and we'll sing from verse 13 to 21. But Lord, I pray in this your time of favor. So let's stand and sing this, and then we'll see what the solution is that comes at the end of this psalm. Verse 29, to the end, I am in pain and distress. May your salvation, O God, protect me. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hoofs. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in them. For God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it. And those who love his name will dwell there. The pain persists. I am in pain and distress. But the prayer continues. And it's a prayer that turns to praise. Or at least 
foresees turning to praise. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. You glorify Christ far more when you praise him in suffering than you do when everything's going well for you. Verse 31 talks about the bull with its horns and its hoofs, and that's speaking of age and of cleanness. And it's saying that the greatest sacrifice you will ever bring to God is a thankful and a grateful heart. In the midst of all your troubles, if you are able to look to God and praise Him and thank Him, that shows the power of the gospel far more than anything else. This this most desperate of prayers ends in praise. It ends in doxology. Why? Wishful thinking? Things are going to turn out okay? No, because of what Christ has done. In uh, the newspapers this week, there was talk, the Guardian and... um, The Times both had articles about uh, the number of people in Britain who say they believe in God is now less than those who say they don't. 44% say they do, 48% say they don't. And there were these heady articles about the end of the church and the end of Christianity and so on. And when you see what goes on in some of the churches at the assemblies and things, you think this is insane. I just got sent a whole bunch of stuff from uh, a minister who today has visited a Hindu temple and a Buddhist shrine and a Baha'i and a, and a mosque. And he's tweeting all over the place. Isn't it wonderful how God is speaking through all these different things? And aren't we all just one? And you think, did Jesus die for nothing? Is that really? You're meant to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you see that, you want to despair. And sadly, many Christians do despair. But again, Calvin says this, there is no reason to fear that the building of the spiritual temple in which the celestial power of God has been manifested will ever fall into ruins. In other words, the devil may may take your body. The devil may kill you. The world may hate you. Everything may go wrong but you will never be lost as a believer and you will be glorified and you will be part of the bride of Christ. And why is that so? How is that possible? It is all because of the cross. It's all because everything in this psalm you can take and you can do as the New Testament does and apply it to Jesus. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I'm worn out, calling for help. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Do you know that line that people use? I like Jesus, it's just his people I don't like. That's rubbish. They hate Jesus. They would crucify Jesus. The reason they don't like his people is because they hate him. They may like an illusion of Jesus, an imaginary Jesus, but the real Jesus, they loathe. He was hated. He was mocked. Zeal for your house consumes me. Romans 15.3, for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. 
John 2.17, his disciples remembered it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. John 19.28, later knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled. This scripture, this song. Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. There is something extraordinarily beautiful and encouraging for the Christian who's going through discouragement and depression and fighting and hurt and pain to know that whatever depth you or I go to, Christ has gone deeper. In other words, we're sinking in the mire. We're thinking we'll never hit rock bottom. We're going to drown. But the rock is there, and the rock is Christ. You will never go so deep that Christ has not already been. In going through this psalm, some would say, well, look, this, these imprecations, these curses that come in the middle of the psalm, that's not Christ-like. You need to read what Christ says. Christ says, depart, you cursed from me. Revelation 6.15, and the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? The wrath of the Lamb. What a horrible phrase. And also, what a wonderful phrase. Because in this world of great injustice, no one hates evil more than God. I I don't know if you noticed, it seems, I, I, I haven't seen it in major headlines or in newspaper billboards, but apparently in the last couple of days, 700 people have drowned trying to cross the Mediterranean. You just think, how, how is that? Why? Several hundred of them drowned because the ship owner locked them under sea level and wouldn't let them out. When the ship began, he just got off. And you and I feel anger, compassion, concern. Do you think God doesn't feel anything more? He sees more, he knows more, and he is aware of more. So, yes, yes, there will come a time when those who reject Christ will stand before Christ and he will say, depart from me, you cursed. And none of us here should want to be in that particular group. But on the cross, we know what Jesus did, don't we? Instead of calling down imprecations and curses on those who crucified him, he was dying for our sins And so he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. If you, uh, and I recommend that you do, if you've ever listened to Handel's Messiah, it's just wonderful. It's just the words of Scripture put to the most beautiful music. But at the end 
of that, or rather at the end of the crucifixion in Handel's Messiah, Psalm 69 and verse 20 is what he used. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. We are talking here about the creator of the universe. We are talking here about the Son of God, the Holy One, the Pure One, the Good One, the only human who has never committed sin, the one who all he needed to do was click his fingers and thousands of thousands of angels would have come to rescue him. And we are saying, and the Bible is saying, that his heart was broken by human beings, his creation, mocking him. His heart was broken. Please do not think of Jesus as being stoical and on the cross and, ah, oh, just carry their sins. His heart was broken. Scorn has broken my heart. And if you are a Christian and you ever want an incentive not to sin, it is simply this. When you do this, you are breaking Christ's heart. You know when Peter betrayed Christ, denied Christ, what did Christ do? He looked at him. He said nothing. He looked at him. And Peter burst into tears. I know that my own children, if I was to say to them, you have so hurt me. What you have done has so wounded me. That would be far worse to them than if I hit them or banned them or did anything else. Because they would know that they'd hurt their dad or hurt their mom. And here, we're saying, don't sin not because, just because sin itself is so wrong, but because this is why Christ died. Scorn has broken my heart. Now, why is this the answer? Just simply going back to this image of sinking in the mire and drowning and everything else. You may feel as though you are drowning. You may be drowning. You may be crying out but you can have an absolute rock-solid certainty that nothing that you experience and nothing that you have done and nothing that anyone else can do to you can ever detract from, take away, diminish, destroy, or prevent the work of Christ for you on the cross. There is a certainty in that. I was... Um, when going up to Montrose this morning, and it was a beautiful day, and uh, I switched something on on my uh, a sermon, and I heard something, and I just thought, oh, that's wonderful, and then I listened to a praise song, and then the sun was shining, and everything. I just, uh, I felt like I was in heaven going towards Montrose, um, and then I came back to Dundee, and got back down to earth uh, a wee bit. You know, what I'm trying to say about that is you can have these tremendous feelings which are really, I'm not decrying those feelings at all. But I'm saying your feelings will come and go. You could also be in the, when you're 
in a kind of happiness and joyful and singing God's praise and lifting your hands and even when you're driving the car and, and you, you remember, my hope is built on Christ, nothing else. And you remember that just as much when you're in the depths of despair and you think that all hell is overwhelming you and you just simply say, but my hope is built on Christ and you are as insured a position in both places. I know which one I prefer to be in, but my surety, my certainty is in Christ in both places. And that's what this psalm is teaching us. Because Christ experienced this psalm, those of us who experience it, we know we will not be lost and we will be brought to glory. Amen. May God bless his word to us. We're going to sing uh, before we take communion. We're going to sing... uh, a song that talks about the love of Christ for us and the, the depths that he went so that we could be rescued from these depths. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly while the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high. Let's stand and sing to God's praise. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.